You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, let's uh, open the Bible to Matthew 19, verses 16 through 30, if you have your Bibles. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All of these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor. And you will, and you will have a treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed. What then will we have? And Jesus said, to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you, will, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the word of God. Let's pray quickly. Lord, add a, would you add a blessing to this, word, to this word? And once again, we thank you for Liberty Memorial Building. And during this season, will you protect all who come and go? And then... We invite you, Holy Spirit, to, as, as uh, this sermon is delivered, we ask that there might be things that we don't understand and there might be things that we don't remember, but would you give us each a word that we need? For Christ's sake, amen. Um, my name's Casey. I'm uh, one of uh, the uh, pastors here, um, as is Lowell and Gary, and you get to see all of us today. Gary's going to do uh, the benediction and when we, we talk about Pastor Elder, man, those words uh, in the New Testament are used synonymously. 
Um, and uh, ultimately, what, what, you know, pastor elder is uh, a plurality of uh, called and qualified men um, who are walking in humility um, after the Lord, seeking the scriptures and the Holy Spirit for doctrine and direction for the church. And uh, man, uh, we installed Lowell uh, this fall, and man, he's been such a blessing. Um, and I'm the one that said he looked like Mr. Rogers. Um, and, uh, but man, I, I, I don't usually do this, uh, but I, before, as we get started, I want you to uh, just kind of be still. I want you to hold your hands open, and uh, I want you to close your eyes. And uh, it's not going to be weird, uh, or it's not going to be too weird. Um, while you're doing that, I should tell you, uh, in college, when I dropped 12 hours uh, and had to add nine hours, I found this class called uh, Religion in the New World. It started late. It ended early. It only met once a week, and it was for three credit hours. And I thought, man, this is jackpot. And then I got to the class, and I found out Religion in the New World, it was about voodoo. And I was like, oh, man, I'm a Christian but I really need the class. Um, and so it was like a systematic theology. I, I, I'm more of a Christian now. I'm way, way more. I was like, no, that ain't true. Uh, but uh, so it's not going to get weird like that. So close your eyes, hold your hands open. And uh, I mean, I just want you to breathe in deep. I want you to let it out. This is also really helpful when you're watching college football and it's not going the way you want. Breathe in deep. Let it out. We sang these words, the power of sin is broken. Jesus has overcome the grave. But what we're about to look at is we're about to see the power of sin on this man's life that he was unwilling to break and unwilling to lay down. But I want you to hear this promise the power of sin is broken because Jesus has overcome it all. You can lay sin down. Because of the blood of Jesus, it has no hold on you. You can lay it down. And it doesn't mean that you're never going to struggle, but it means you can be free. And what this text is going to describe, it's going to describe uh, something that is a deeper love to this man than Jesus is. It's not evil, it's not wrong, but it's idolatrous in the sense that he loves it more. And we all have sins like that. But you can lay it down. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, we love you. And as we look at this text, may it just help us. You know, we're prone to think right now, man, if we, if we don't have any money, we're like, oh, man, I'm good. <laughs> I mean, but Lord, man, there are things that step into our life that hope, um, that we start to put our hope in and we start to lean on. They become more important to us than, than you. And Lord, man, that's going to happen. And we're going to have to lay it down. We're going to have to lay it down. We're going to have to lay it down. Help us with our hands open to hold whatever to you. And Lord, we claim the promise that you give, that at the end you say the last will be first and the first will be last. And we only have that promise because you were first and you made yourself last. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, I'm going to warn you as we get started with this, I actually wrote three outlines for this um, and ditched two of them. And they all kind of said the same thing. Uh, but, you know, one was uh, my, my points were this, good guy, uh, good God. And it was going to be funny because I was going to say, good God. Uh, and then good question. That he had this question, like, what do I lack? Like he was looking at his life and he was trying to say, man, I'm trying to follow the Ten Commandments. I'm trying to do all these things. I'm a pretty good guy and I'm looking at, and you're saying the only good is God. What is my good question? What do I lack? He had a sense inside of himself that he lacked something. It's a good question. And then I actually wanted to, I, I alliterated, I had a problems, possessions, and promises, but I alliterated like three weeks ago, and I can't alliterate too often, because uh, then you expect it all the time. And it also had me saying damnable a lot, because I was going to talk about damnable problems, damnable possessions, and undamnable promises. And I just felt guilty, because in my city group, um, I was playing with some of our kids, and they were, you know, little kids, and they said something, I was like, hey, man, shut your mouth. And they were like... <clears throat> All right, you can't say that. I said, like, I didn't say shut up. <laughs> and, <they're, gasps> and so then I had to apologize to their mom. Um, and they started saying it a lot. So I was like, no, we can't go with that. And, you know, ultimately what we see here is I want you to see that we see the problem is walking for something or towards something and walking away or from something. And, and so what we see is we see this guy, he walks away for money and possessions. Like, like there's no doubt uh, uh, Matthew 19 is warning us of the dangers uh, in this text. And those dangers we see in verse 22, look down at verse 22. It says, when the young man heard this, where he says, lay this down, follow me, lay this down, pick me up. When he heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And so this guy walks away sorrowfully. He walks away from Jesus for his great possessions. And the warning is like our possessions can start to possess us. And we need to hear this warning because it talks about him having great wealth. But we've just looked like if we look at history, like as a whole, we are the wealthiest people to ever breathe air on this planet. And so if we don't think our things have a possession on us, if we don't think that they can draw, that we'll walk away from Jesus for money and possessions, we're in great risk. You see, like things like greed and the power, it's somewhat subjective because you can always find someone who's greedier than you. You can always find someone who has more than you. And so there's a warning that says, Casey, Pastor Casey, your things have more of a hold on you than you know. But it also is a warning from. This guy walks away from a relationship with Jesus because he didn't want to lay down his wealth and possessions or he didn't want to hold them open. And I don't want to try to take away from the text because Jesus looks at this guy and he sees the hold of wealth and possessions and he says, I want you to give it all away. But then he offers a relationship and he says, come, follow me. That's a relationship. That's not saying I want you to give it all away and like jump into church membership. It's not saying, I want you to give it all away and I want you to, you know, you know, these creeds and these codes, they're going to talk about creeds and codes and the Ten Commandments, but he says really plainly, I want you to give it away and I just want you to be about me. I want you to follow after me. 
And so this possession of pulling me to or pulling me away, like he's walking away from a relationship with God, a soul-saving, life-satisfying, joy-enduring, life-fulfilling relationship with God. He walked away from a relationship with Jesus for his money and possessions, and the struggle was over what is good. Like in the first two verses, you see good quite a bit, but good is inferred on a lot of different things. And so in verse 16, he comes and he asks, what good must I do to have eternal life? Like there's a sense that there's something broken about us and it is something that pulls us away from God. And so he has that sense. He says, man, I have to do something good to overcome this brokenness. I need something good. And so then verse 17, look down at 17. You know, Jesus says, there's only one good And that good is God. And we see this this story is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it always follows after, you know, Jesus saying, let the kids come to me. The way you get in the kingdom of God is you have to become like a child. Like it's always in the same order. And so we kind of have this juxtapose, like the disciples shoo the kids away. If you look at the verses right before verse 16, they don't deserve your time, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. They need to come. I came for the children. I came. Matter of fact, I just told you, Matthew 18, the very first part of it, the way to get into the kingdom of God is you need to be like them. You need to know that you have need. You need to know that you're loved. And if you know that, if you know that you need God to do something for you, and if you know that you are loved by God and he's glad to do it, you can be in the kingdom of God. But they said, these are the kind of people you shoo away. And suddenly this guy is the kind of guy you don't shoo away. And Jesus sends him away sorrowfully. And so we see this is about good. He says only God is good. But then it goes on. It talks about keeping the Ten Commandments as a good. It doesn't say good, but it starts to talk about, you know, the commandments. This is how we connect with God. This is how the people of God live. This is what can give you, you know, bring you into uh, not a relationship with God because it can't save you. But like when we follow the Ten Commandments, it puts us kind of in an intimacy with Jesus or an intimacy with God because we're trusting him. And our, you know, our, our society starts to reflect that. And so he says, hey, the Ten Commandments, you got to do that kind of good. And then he perks up in verse 20 and he says, man, I've done all those good things. But then in verse 20, he says, I still feel like I'm lacking something good. What do I still lack? And so he's saying, man, I have a no good feeling inside of me that haunts me, that's saying it's not enough. And then in verse 21 and 22, he says, you need to lay down your earthly goods to pick up heavenly treasure, heavenly goods. And so the question is, what makes us good enough for God? What can put us in a saving relationship with God? Like, and the danger is, if I'm pretty okay, I think I might be good enough. And this story is here to convince us that we're not okay enough. Uh, I was in a, a store and they had a, you know, it's like, you know, like the, like the Kansas sampler type thing where you have all the, you know, I'm a, a Jayhawker dad or whatever. And they have like, you know, things that like, I'm the number one, you know, dad. Like there's official ranking system out there somewhere and I want it somehow. Uh, but next to it, it was next to the number one dad, it had, uh, most okayest dad. And I was like, that's probably pretty true. <laughs> probably the most okayest. So 
what we're being warned about is a relationship with God cannot be earned like wealth can. It can only be received by a laying down and a surrender. But you cannot have this relationship if you keep hiding the brokenness that you feel on the inside. You have to hold it open. And usually with that, you have to hold open what you're trusting in. And so Jesus sees, loves, and confronts the real uh, rich guy that comes to him. He sees him as he really is. He sees all the way to the heart. He sees his perfections, and he lets him walk away. And so, like, make no mistake, Jesus is offering the rich young ruler and you something that you want more than anything else. Jesus is offering him and you a moment of clarity that will scare us. And so this text is about a guy who comes to Jesus and asks, man, what do I need to do to be saved? What must I do to be loved by God? And in Matthew 18, Jesus just finished saying, and the kingdom of God comes when you see yourself as a child that knows that they need and knows that they are loved. And now we see the opposite of this, someone who's well put together, someone who has resources, Someone who probably looks at his portfolio or his resume and other people shudder. Someone who walks in with a great deal of confidence and yet this someone still has a haunting, aching need. And he finds himself before Jesus and saying, what must I do? So I gave you the other two sermon outlines. If you wrote those down, just write through them. Um, they're no good. But it's kind of the same sermon with two points. The first thing is we're going to look at the danger. Like the danger we are in, and that danger is our good isn't good enough. And so we're going to look at this danger, and Jesus really unpacks it in some ways, not by what he says, but by what he doesn't say. But it's pretty evident, and it'd be pretty evident to a Jewish listener. And then the second point is the invitation that we're offered. So the danger, the invitation, and the invitation is Lay it down and follow me. And so first, the danger we're in. And this danger, like it's saying we are in a special danger when we have lots of good evidence that says I'm pretty okay. I'm pretty good. Or we could say it more simply, like when we think of ourselves, I mean, I am better than a lot of other people. And so I have to be okay, or I'm pretty put together. I haven't blown it like they have, or I operate pretty well. Like that is a dangerous place. And so let's look at this guy. This guy is pretty good. Like, look at verse 16. Like, he's pretty good. And the first thing we would say is he's young and successful. And so verse 16, it says, And behold, a man came up to him. But if you look right above that, we see a description of what this man is like. And so in Matthew, it says that this man is young and rich. Like, it kind of, we get this title because it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so what we see in the title is, first, he's a rich young man. But that goes on. If we look in uh, Mark, we find out that he's also a ruler. And so between all of the titles, we find that he is a rich, young ruler. My dad did a church play, and he was the rich, young ruler. But he was like, man, I'm not rich, and I'm not young, but I'm here to rule. Um, 
But like this guy is described as someone who has possessions. He got possessions at a young age, so he must have some sort of talent. And he's got like not just possessions and talent, but he's got affinity. Like people are drawn to him. He's got resources. He's got pull. He's connected. And so like the riches, like the resource that he has, he has a track record of being successful. He has choices and security locked up for him. He's young. Like he's probably kind of pretty. He probably looks pretty good. He, he probably would be cast for The Bachelor. This is the first edition of The Bachelor, 81, you know, where he comes out. Everyone's like, man, he's got dimples and he's got abs and he doesn't hurt for days after his church plays the turkey bowl. I mean, he doesn't hurt for days. Like we would look at this guy and we're like, man, he's got a lot of things going and he's not just rich. He's not just young. He also has influence and power. He's described as a ruler. Like, I don't know if anything could encapsulate our, idol- our idolatries more. To be like rich, to be, to be young and well-known, to have success associated with your name, to have the ability to open doors. Like this is speaking right to us. It's speaking to our music. Like Taylor Swift, she writes a song feeling like 22, not feeling like 42. Because 42, I happen to know by experience, feels different than 22. And it's a song about going out with your friends and being out late. But when you're 42, you go out with your friends and you go home early. Like this speaks to our idolatries. To have power and resources and to have like, wealth and good looking, you know, to have all of these things. Like this is like what we see on magazine covers as we're checking out. Like he's pretty good. He's young and successful. He's also kind of socially aware. Look at verse 16. It says, and behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Like he kind of knows what to do in different kinds of settings. You know, we also see this in the Mark account. Like he comes and he bows down and says, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Which commentaries kind of say, man, he is like going way overboard with this. But it's like this respectful address. He knows how to address Jesus. And he sees Jesus as someone who has some sort of insight on the spiritual things. He has an idea of how to interact with this religious crowd. He comes, and if we take all the accounts together, he bows down. He says, teacher, man, tell me about eternal life. Tell me what it means to be spiritually good. Like, he kind of knows what to do. He, he knows, like, what fork to use for the salad and what fork to use for, like, the, the food food and what fork to use for the dessert. Like, he's aware, and so he doesn't feel awkward in these situations. So he's pretty good. He's young, he's successful, he's kind of socially aware. He's also religious and moral. Look at verse 17. After addressing Jesus and asking this question, look at what Jesus says to him. And so, and he said, Jesus said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, eternal life, keep the commandments. Like, and what we're about to see is Jesus is about to talk about the second 
table of the Ten Commandments, the second half. And so you got one through four, and those are all talking about a vertical relationship with God. And then you've got six through 10. It's talking about a horizontal relationship with one another. And you've got commandment five right in the middle, which is honor your father and mother. And it kind of puts this together, like the best chance for you to understand a relationship with God and how to interact with the rest of the world is to have parents that love you enough to teach you these things to disciple you, to let you understand why, you know, when you're in the backyard and you're little and you're a boy, it's okay to go pee pee on the bush, but you can't do that when you're trick or treating. There are different social settings. Anna, when she was little, she came up to us once and uh, she actually came up to Kinsey and she said this, she's like, man, you know, Cruz taught me how to pee pee outside. I can't wait till I get older and I can pee standing up. And we were like, uh, maybe we should have some different goals in our life. But like social settings matter. And all of a sudden he can deal with the religious crowd. Like in verse 20, you know, when he says, man, I've kept these commandments. Jesus doesn't jump over the table and say liar. But he does actually show how he actually failed all of them. If we look closely, this guy was pretty good, but he wasn't good enough. He wasn't good enough. First, his view of Jesus wasn't high enough. Look back in verse 16 again. When it comes, he says, teacher. He doesn't say rabbi. And so every rabbi would be a teacher, but a teacher is someone who knows a lot about this, but it doesn't mean I'm necessarily gonna follow after him. And so the disciples have already said, rabbi, wherever you go, we are gonna follow. You have the words of life. Where else can we find them? And so they are committed. This guy is trying Jesus out. So he comes and says, man, I'm respectful of Jesus. I see you as an expert in the field of spiritual matters but we'll see what you say if I'm gonna follow after you. And you just need to know, like most people don't miss Jesus because they hate Jesus. They miss Jesus because Jesus asks for too much and they ask for something that they love and they love something more than Jesus. You can think well of Jesus and miss Jesus. And so first his view of Jesus wasn't high enough. Second, his moral goodness didn't go far enough. And so Jesus starts off with the the second half of the Ten Commandments. And so he goes, he quotes commandments six through nine, and then he adds in commandment five, and then he nails the guy with commandment 10. And so, you know, that's the second table of the Ten Commandments, the ones that deal horizontally. And so he's looking at this guy and he's saying, listen, there's a, we are prone to try to measure our righteousness by outdoing other people. And so he starts first with that. And so take a look at this in verse 17. And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And so he says to enter eternal life, to be reunited with God, you must keep the commandments. And like we know by by redemption, by the, the doctrine of salvation, and we know by the unfolding of how it unfolds from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that 
what is demanded to be before God is absolute perfection. And so what it's going to say is if you fail one commandment, you fail all the commandments. And so it's about to get really, really heavy. But this guy comes back with verse 18. He says, well, which ones? And so it's a rookie mistake. Like you don't say stuff like that out loud to Jesus because he's about to Jesus slam you. And so he says, well, which ones? And so like, look, he kind of builds him up a little bit. And so this is how he breaks it down. So in verse 18, and Jesus says, commandment six, you shall not murder. Six, sticks. You could kill someone if you hit him with a stick. And then he says, commandment seven, you should not commit adultery. Seven, 11 equals 18. When you're 18, you're an adult. And then he says, commandment eight, you shall not steal. Gates are made of steel. So thou shall not steal. Or he goes, you shall not bear false witness. Commandment nine, nine, it rhymes with spine. You lie on your spy, thou shall not lie. And so over and over these things are coming. The guy's saying, check, I haven't murdered. Check, I, I, I haven't committed adultery. Check, I haven't stolen anything. Check, I'm not lying. And then he throws this in commandment five, honor your father and mother. And if he's smart, he probably looked around a little bit to make sure mom and dad weren't around and said, yeah, check, I got it. And then he throws in Leviticus 19.18. It says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It seems like the guy is nodding his head saying, check, got it. Did that. Good. And then all of a sudden, like what we don't see is Jesus doesn't say, hey, did you hear my Matthew 5 commentary? Did you hear my sermon on the Mount where I said, you know, things like this? Oh, no murder. Have you ever hated someone because they wronged you? Then you're guilty before God for murder. He doesn't do that. Or he doesn't say, oh, no adultery. Have you ever looked lustfully upon a woman in your mind? That's adultery in your heart. He doesn't do that. Or he doesn't say stolen. You've never taken anything that wasn't yours. You've never taken credit that wasn't yours. He could have done that. He doesn't do it. And then he doesn't like lied. You never lied. Are you serious? Like he could have done all of those things. But what we see in verses 21 through 22 is Jesus asked him to let go of his possessions to follow after him. And he can't. This, this failing this failing of commandment 10 of coveting because like part of possessions is having and when other people have what you want, it's so natural to say, man, I deserve that. I want that. I worked harder. Why do they get it? And so failing the 10 commandment brings light of how I failed everything else. He wouldn't walk away from his great possessions. And so that means he failed commandment one, putting something before God. He had something before God, money and possessions. It means he failed commandment two, like having an idol of his life exposed. The idol of his life was money and possessions. It means he failed commandment three, blaspheming God, where God literally said, lay this down. He says, it's too good to lay down. What you say is wrong. And he didn't just forget about the Sabbath he turned away from Jesus Christ himself, failing commandment four. Like Jesus doesn't jump over the table with all of that because he doesn't have to because when he walked away from Jesus for his money and possessions, it exposed the idols of his life. It exposed a dream or a first love that was above his devotion to Jesus or above his devotion to God. And so the danger it's seen in the question. Jesus uncovers something that's hard to see, 
something that will, will damn you if Jesus doesn't confront it about you, something that must happen for us to be in a saving relationship. And we see it in the question, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And the problem is there is no doing that will earn you more affection from God. There is no doing that you can do that will get you into a saving relationship with God. There is no doing that you can do that will save you. There is a receiving and a laying down. There is a responding. See, there, there's this special danger of being pretty good or pretty successful or pretty okay. And Jesus goes after it directly. He ignores the guy's pretty good obedience on commandment five through nine to nail him on commandment 10 to show him that this one thing is the great love of his life. And he says, this dream, this thing that you hope in, it's not even evil. Jesus didn't tell everyone to get rid of all their possessions. Zacchaeus had a lot of possessions and he just gave away half. Like there were rich people who followed after Jesus and in the early church, they used their homes. And so generosity is laid, but there's something that always has to be laid down because it rivals Jesus himself. And this is the invitation. And so the invitation that we're offered, Jesus exposes his real problem and invites him to lay down his competing love and to follow him. And so verse 20 Look down verse 20, it says, the young man said to him after the, you know, the 10 commandments were shared with him or six, seven, eight, and nine. And he says, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And, and so we already said that Christianity is not a, a good deed that you can do, but Christianity is also not something that you just add to your life. Just adding a little Jesus to your life is not what it takes to become a Christian. It is far more explosive than that. It is far bigger than that. Jesus comes in to wreck and decimate parts of your life because he has to be on the throne. He comes in to save you, but he has to first saturate you. You can't just add Jesus to your life and become a Christian. It's far more explosive than that. And so look at verse 21, and Jesus said to him, and in Mark 10, I actually love this. In Mark 10, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him. Jesus looks at us and loves us when he says explosive things in our life. He doesn't look at us and smirk and say, I want to hurt you. He looks at us and loves us and says, I know this is going to wreck you. I know there's something that has to be done, but you need to hear this more than anything else. And so he says, if you would be perfect. Now, we already saw that he has broken a lot of commandments. But if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Which means this, to find yourself in a relationship with Jesus who can make you perfect before God. Like there has to be a laying down of a first love. That doesn't mean a killing of a first love, but a laying down, a holding your hands open and saying, if you want it, you can take it. Jesus saw through the outwardly pretty parts of his life, the presentable things that everyone else saw that man, he had it together and he was a hard worker and he was successful. He's the guy you want on your team, the MVP. 
He saw that. But Jesus saw beneath his striving and covering, beneath the trending social media spin on his life, he saw to the ugly places. He saw what was held above a relationship with God. And he exposed it. And he just said, can you give it to me? And I started off by saying, hey, this is definitely about the dangers of money and possessions. But it's more than that. This is about the dreams that we think will make our life hold together. This, this might be like, you know, what, let's just ask what money could do for him. Like money could open doors for him. And so it might be about opportunities or money could give him status. Like people see him a certain way, respect him a certain way. And so it might be about status or money could give him security. Like, like I'm safe when things fall apart because I can fix it. Like this is about idolatry, things that I trust, good things that become God things. And when they become God things, they become terrible things. This is about idolatry that is more offensive than what we think. And that's why the Bible often calls idolatry, idolatry. Putting something before God. Loving something more than him. And so it's more offensive than we think. It's a competing love and it's less like, oops, I made a mistake and more like a bitter betrayal to a loved one. What if when the Bible describes sin like this, what if it means it? What if things can have a hold on us And Jesus just saying, just hand it to me. Hold your hands open because if you don't, you will walk away from me for it. What if the warning is true like that? What if if forgiveness is like your spouse seeing that you would walk away from them for a promotion or a better house or a younger spouse or a more accomplished spouse? What if it's like that and they are pleading with you, hold your hands open and choose me? Warning is deep. And so Jesus addresses the unbecoming part of him and invites him into be known and to be loved. And then we get to verse 22. And look at verse 22. It says, when the man heard this, he went away sorrowful. The, the word sorrowful, like it's oftentimes, just, you know, uh, translated as grieving and distressed or pained. And so the answer he received from Jesus pained him and he still walked away, but he walked away and Jesus let him walk away. Verse 23, and Jesus says to disciples to describe what just happened. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will the rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus says, it is really hard to trust Jesus and to lay things down and to trust God when you have a lot of good things you can lean on because you think you're not like a kid who has need. You think you're more like the rich man who has opportunity. And so he says, it's really, really hard. Now this whole, you know, I camel through the eye of a needle, people get really weird with it. And so, you know, there is a word that kind of looks like the camel word, but it's rope. And so it's like, man, it'd be like trying to take a rope, you know, through the eye of a needle. And you can't do that. And like maybe, 
Or, or they say, man, there's a gate and there's actually no historical evidence getting to Jerusalem. It's called the eye of the needle and it's really big. So you have to unpack the camel and then the camel goes through and then you pack him back up. Uh, the problem is no one can find that gate. And so we don't know if it exists. And so you're like, well, I mean, maybe it's kind of cool. What I think Jesus is doing is he's just trying to say a really impossible thing. And so he looks at them and he thinks about the biggest animal that they ever seen, which is a camel, because they probably hadn't seen an elephant and they probably hadn't seen a blue whale. And he says, man, think about the biggest thing you've ever seen and think about the smallest thing you've ever seen. And he says, man, when you are trusting in so many things, you can't get through the eye of the needle. But even if you don't trust in those things, like you can't get through it, like the danger is so deep, only God can do it. And so that's why it gets to the place where in verse 25, when he says, you know, the disciples hear this. They were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Like the whole point of Jesus answering is that the only good thing is God. And that good thing can make this possible. Only God is good enough to save you. And we're seeing what has always been true in Christianity. What the Bible has a very unified voice on that the best things about us can't save us. And so we saw it with Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he stood before the throne room of God and he says, my lips are unclean. And what he was saying, he was a professional orator. And so, I mean, that's, you know, when someone's like really good at speaking, you're like, oh man, you made me laugh. You made me cry. Uh, like that, that's cool. Back then when like the orders recounted history and told people, because a lot of people were illiterate, it was a really big deal. And so he's saying the best thing about me isn't enough. It's flawed. And God atoned for it instantly. Or we might see Abraham and his son Isaac. The promise was there's going to be an heir and that heir is going to lead to this multitude of nation. And that multitude of nation has to come through Isaac because he's the only son, the promised son. And God said, put him on the altar and sacrifice him to me. Hands open. My greatest ability, my, my most precious possession, hold it open. And so it's always, this is, what, this is what's hard about Christianity and what's great about Christianity. Jesus will always ask for more than what you think, but he will always give far more than you could ever dream. And so look at how the disciples respond, verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Now, like when I first read that, I kind of think, man, this is another Peter moment where he's going to put his sandal in his mouth. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if that's what it is. I, I think he's being honest. I think he's saying, gosh, we left everything and it's not near as much what, as what he would have to leave. You know, it's hard to leave my fishing business, but it wasn't even that great until you showed up and showed me how to throw the net on the other side. But I left it all. He says, see, we've left everything. Will there be reward for us also? Look at what he says in verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you. And this, this, Matthew 19, verse 28. This has become a really big promise that I lean on a lot. When Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, 
And, and the language there, where it says in the new world, it means reborn. And so it's this consistent message in the new world when everything is rebirthed, when all of these things are made new, when all the broken things have subsided and they've given birth to something wonderful, where all the sacrifices that you laid down and you didn't know if you could ever pick it up again, where all the brokenness and all the tears that you cried, where all of those find their yes in a Psalms 125, that those who sow in tears will reap in joy. When all of those happen, when the Son of Man comes back in a, in a Revelation 21 and he wipes away every tear, and for him to wipe away every tear, he has to know about every tear. When the church lived in the multifaceted grace of God, meaning they applied a certain kind of grace to every woe and every hurt and every disappointment and every pain, that there is a grace of God for every one of those things. When all of it has been accomplished and Jesus is fully enthroned, look at what he says. He says, when all of that and Jesus is enthroned, he looks at them and he says, those who have followed me, he's looking at them, you will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses and brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And like you could take that and be like, man, I got to leave a bunch of stuff just to, so I can earn. That, that, that's missing the whole point. The whole point is when I hold something open-handed and it's going to cost me more than I think it, but it's going to give me more than I ever dream. And the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus is then applied to me and the resurrection power for every tear that is cried and every disappointment that's endured and every insult that's landed and everything that goes wrong. When those things land on you, the resurrectional power of Jesus says, you may not see it now, but this is going to lead to heavenly treasure. And he just describes it like in the best way he can. You know, something that's good, elevated, a throne, something that has power and meaning. It's not like just clouds and harps. It has worth and value. And he says, it's going to be worth it. It will be a hundredfold. And the consistent message of the Bible has always been this. You can't just add a little bit of God to you to save you. You can't just do something and that saves you. It has to be what Nicodemus found out in John 3. When Nicodemus came, he wasn't a rich young man. He was a rich old man with a lot of learning and a lot of power. And he comes to Jesus at night and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And he says, Nicodemus, aren't you the teacher of Israel? Aren't you the theological leader that's unpacking all the Old Testaments, unpacking the law and all the promises? And that's probably an official title. And he says, it all counts for nothing. You have to go back and be born again. And so this consistent message about laying down and starting over, becoming like a child, knowing that you have need, being convinced that you are loved, is through the scriptures over and over and over. And he says a hundredfold, which I looked up, it just means a hundred times. I kind of felt stupid after I looked it up. Um, 
but we're asking, man, how does this happen? Like, what, what might this be thing that God's just asking me to hold open-handed? And it might be the, the dreams for that relationship or it might be the reputation to be a certain way or it might be that success that you're working hard for. Or it might be that kind of career or it might be a certain life that has security or it might be, you know, a certain kind of family it just has to feel perfect. And all of those things are not evil things, but they have to be lesser things. And then we get this promise. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is a promise, but it's also telling us how God can do this. How can we be born again? How can we be made new? How will he be able to sit on the throne and all things resurrected and reborn? And the reason and the way is what Jesus did. Jesus was first and he made himself last. Jesus was the rich young ruler who left his land and his kingdom and gave up everything to walk among us. And then he left his life and he left the heavenly dwellings of heaven. Heavenly dwellings of heaven. That, reorder that some way. He left it so that we could be included in it. He lost his family to make that family a hundredfold. And you can be in it. Everyone who trusts and treasures Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you want Jesus, you can be in it. But he's going to ask you to hold something open-handed. And man, one of the great things about communion every week is we see what Jesus paid for to purchase us into the kingdom. And we don't carry anything to the table. Uh, up before you, you're going to see bread, um, and we got some gluten-free options in the middle. Um, but the bread is torn apart for you, it's handed to you, and what's declared over you is the, the body of Christ, you know, broken for your, for your sins. Jesus' body was torn apart. And then we have wine and grape juice. The, the wine is in the stoneware, grape juice in the glassware. And what's spoken over you as you dip it is this, that, you know, the blood of Jesus was shed for your life. Like it was purchased, it was paid. And you don't carry anything up here except what you have. And if God is talking to you about a love that's just rivaling him, man, just carry it with open hands. If God is talking about a sin that seems to have possession over you, remember the words that we sang, that we sang over and over. The power of sin is broken. Jesus has overcome it all. So carry it with open hands and hand it to him. And whatever that looks like, it looks like this. Jesus paid it all. All to Jesus we owe. Sin affected us. It left a mark. But the crimson blood of Jesus can cover all. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. And Lord, I just pray that, man, as we're talking, man, we see something in our hands and it may not be evil. It probably isn't. But Lord, we would hand it to you. Um, we can't earn it. We can't just add a little bit of you. It's more like being reborn. It's more like explosive power in our life that you come in and you can be trusted. Because if you have scars on your hands and scars on your side, surely we can trust the leading of your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas, please visit our website at fcclawrence.com.